What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Hi there, it's Paul, and you're listening to What the Footy, the podcast that takes football fans behind the scenes. Here is what I have lined up for you today. There would have to be a law passed which would effectively say you need to give up your majority of control, which is worth billions of pounds, to fan supporters group. And I just, honestly, I'm not sure how realistic that is as a, um, as a proposition. This week's podcast features prominent sports lawyer and content creator, Daniel G. Guys, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the European Super League debate quieting down a bit. But two words, two words that are gonna be the key going forward in the future of the game a governance and regulation. Daniel and I speak about where do we go from here post the European Super League fallout from the fan-led review that the government are taking on to why Daniel believes that 50 plus one will not work. We speak about salary caps, what the government can do, and we speak about power, status, and the redistribution of wealth in the beautiful game. Can the big six be tamed? Guys, I hope you love this episode. This is the What The Footy Podcast with Daniel G. I hope you love it. Not like it, I hope you love it. So you know what to do. Download, subscribe, rate and review and tell a friend to tell a friend. Let's go. New Sam Allardyce liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school. Now nice putting <laughs> awesome. Powerful people and I think they need to recognise that, but then also... They need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. So when in the league, let's just win this to appease the fan. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by a special guest. I'm joined by Daniel G. Daniel is a sports lawyer and probably I'd say Daniel the most famous sports lawyer in the world. Um, appears Definitely on- not the case, but I'll, I'll take it. Appears on many podcasts and runs the famous Dundee podcast. And if you haven't checked out his book yet, Dundee, make sure you check it out. But Daniel, pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, thank you. That's the biggest uh, big up I've had for quite a while. So I'll, yeah, appreciate it. <laughs> uh, that's good. But yeah, we'd like to start the show off with this question, which is what is football to you, a business or a sport and why? Well, um, it's always been both, um, and it will continue to be both. Um, I think everybody has um, sort of gold-tinted glasses sometimes about or views of football being more of a sport and less of a business a few years ago, or less so or otherwise. You know, I speak to my dad about it on various occasions. Um, the, the, the difference is now is sport is a global um, you know, a global industry that is worth billions of pounds. Whereas uh, 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, because of the advent or lack of advent of technology and TV uh, and people being able to access the sport and prices um, and the commercialization of sport, um, things were more local. And uh, whereas things had previously been more local, things for the top clubs and even, you know, the vast majority of at least Premier League and top level clubs in other countries and regions is global and I think that's the difference football is global where it wants was local yeah no definitely but I think just even going into with the European Super League I know 
you've spoken on quite a few things so far and I was listening to you on Clubhouse with Jamie Carragher as well but the, the thing I really wanted to get into into here with you Daniel is the whole idea of governance and where, where do we almost go from here? I know there's the fan-led review that's taking place. Everyone's been speaking about 50 plus one. There's been talks of an independent football regulator. Where do you believe we go from now, from here now? Well, I would, well, the first thing I would say is I'd recommend um, for yourself and for any listeners, there's, there's a brilliant, brilliant interview between Gary Neville and Richard Scudamore um, yeah. that is called, it's on, his, it's on Neville's overlap, new... Yeah. Yeah, the overlap, exactly, exactly. And I watched it last night, actually. It was a brilliant watch, only because, you know, Neville's pretty forthright, is the truth, and rightly so, and that's how you get to interesting questions and important answers. But Scudamore, as you'd expect, as being the executive chairman of the Premier League for almost 20 years as well, gave as good as he got as well. Um, he was a realist. Um, he... he um, um, differed in a lot of views he disagreed with Neville in a lot of different ways as well but they came together on a number of um, important points which was effectively um, their, their split was Neville was like we need an independent football regulator and Scudamore was no we just need better regulation so there's there's a question and you're as a, a as a trainee lawyer as well and someone that was going to get into the business of probably looking at regulations on a regular basis um which um for some is fun and for others less so um but um the issue is as scudamore said in the piece that he in his interview was that usually regulation is reactionary it is because of a particular event or particular thing that happens that then the rule book gets um, uh, uh, um, redrafted and gets amended and gets um, uh, and effectively gets bulkier. It happened with Tevez and Mascherano in third party ownership stuff. It happened with Portsmouth with financial fair play. It's happened with the owners and directors test on a variety of different um, uh, examples. Um, it happens on transfers that need to be done differently, on how securitization deals work in the football industry with transfers. It happens with particular issues to do with how wages are paid. It happens with image rights related matters, etc. So if we, if we start on the fundamental, which is governance and regulation, um, there's a query about whether an independent regulator would do things differently to um, you know, the, the, the self-interested clubs as a, as a collective. But I think the ultimate point that uh, it all comes down to really is power, status, and redistribution, really. It's where does the money go? Who wields the power to make the decision? And should someone else be doing it, ultimately? Um, and there's different elements to that. If we talk about... Um, owners and directors test or we talk about distribution of wealth um you know my view on some of it is you know should it go should more money go down the grass go down to grassroots football yes to a degree but no problem with that if actually there is chronic underinvestment in grassroots to a degree but i think what a lot of people have said and what scudamore said to a degree which i completely agreed with is that there's no point just putting money down the ladder um, if actually it's just going to be spent on the same things that it's being spent on already. Yeah. Um, so without adequate cost controls, i.e. do you have to break even? Do you have to make small losses? Are there ways that you can make things more sustainable? Then 
the money going down the chain effectively just gets spent again. Um, and the flipped argument to that is, well, if you actually make sure everyone can only live within their means, then you raise the drawbridge for aspirational clubs sometimes in that they can't go up the pyramid as easy. They can't get into the Premier League. They can't get into the Champions League. You can't go from Salford non-league to Salford now, you know, on the cusp of championship, I think, or, you know, the idea of yeah. getting into the championship potentially as well. So all of these ideas in the round, I have no problem with. But the question when you bottle down the nuance of each one is everybody, everything that is on the table has a flip side and a reaction. Mm. So, you know, everyone's saying we need to go 50 plus one because actually we need to give everyone a greater control of, um, of the decision making of the club. And actually fans will run it better than, um, than owners that want to run it differently. To a lot of the time, I'm not necessarily sure that's tr true. Um, I think the real question, I think, or the real crux of the argument sometimes, I think, is more um, to do with what's called the golden share, as we talked about with Jamie on one of the, um, on the, one of the clubhouse chats, which was for certain very strategic structural changes that need to be made to a football club, i.e., are they not going to play in a domestic league anymore? Are they going to leave and go to a Super League? Are they going to change location? Are they going to change their kit um, uh, color or brand or whatever else it might be? Are there such big decisions that are being taken that will fundamentally impact the fan group and supporter group that actually those things need to be taken in consultation rather than which player are we going to buy and um, who, which manager are we going to effectively appoint? Are we going to sack someone? What about the commercial strategy? What about inclusion, diversity, disability stuff or otherwise like that? I think everybody needs to, in a way, um, take, um, take a view as to what actually everybody wants to see. If they want to see fan ownership of football clubs, my honest view of that is it's pretty unlikely to happen because that will take significant government intervention, probably by way of legislative change to say, you mark, um, not Mark and Glazer, the Glazer family, the Cronkies, FSG, um, others of City or Chelsea or Bramovich or you know Enoch at, um, at Spurs there would have to be a law passed which would effectively say you need to give up your majority of control which is worth billions of pounds to fan supporters group and I just honestly I'm not sure how realistic that is as a um, as a proposition but what potentially is I think more realistic is much better fan consultation if that means a, a fan as a director or if it means particular carved out categories of very important actions and behaviors that can't be done without at least consultation and support of yeah. um, of the wider fan audience perhaps yeah because i think it's quite an interesting one because for me what really stood out was how forthright someone like Boris Johnson was on, on this issue because my kind of view of the big six when you really look at it is I think they're quite similar to the tech world in regards to Facebook and Google in terms of how can you actually regulate them because yes the Premier League is the 20 clubs but at the end of the day the, the main reason why the broadcasters pay all that money is to show the Arsenal versus Burnley, Spurs versus, um, Spurs versus Fulham for instance so it's a case whether whether my view is, is regulation too late? Should we have some form of self-regulation? How do you do it in a way whereby too much power isn't being lost? At the end of the day, what we're speaking about here is the distribution of power. And 
someone has to give up power at the end of the day. And it's, it's just a case of how do we go about that? Well, agreed. I think it's as much to do with that as it is the distribution of utility, of resources. That's what we're talking about. And that's what, um, you know, each club will have their own self-interest. There'll be a collective interest, which might differ from each of those clubs in itself. And, um, you know, a lot of the time, what I think everyone needs to consider is what change do they want to actually see in football? Is it greater distribution? Is it less power for the Premier League to make certain decisions? Is it a delineation between what the Premier League does, what the FA does, what the EFL does, what UEFA does? You know, I know it's come to a fore with European Super League stuff, but you know, I, I've said this on to, on quite a few occasions. Um, but you know, the, the real, in my mind, the real issue with um, the Super League stuff is um, that you know the semi-closed league aspect of what they were trying to do. I, I query whether there, um, whether if it had been marketed in a very different way. And I know a, a fundamental part was obviously this closed league because clubs wanted to ensure consistency of revenue generation over a long period of time. But let's say, for example, um, a boss set up a non-profit, a not-for-profit organisation, which had backing of fifteen of the biggest clubs across Europe, because they believed UEFA weren't doing a very good job of commercialising their revenues, um, and that the, those clubs would get a fair share of those those revenues, but actually give three times the amount um, to grassroots across Europe by way of solidarity contributions, and there would be an open system for people qualifying from the domestic leagues into um, the European competitions, you know, I think that has a very different look to it and yeah. um, is the truth. Now, because the truth also in lots of ways is people don't like what FIFA have done over the years. Some people are not necessarily so keen on UEFA's Swiss model and all of that type of stuff as well. So it's not as black and white that suddenly the ESL's idea in principle wasn't actually didn't have some legs in some ways in some very ways, but it's easy to look back in hindsight and say, oh, they should have done yeah. this, or this should have happened, or this should have happened. But it's certainly not suggesting at the same time that UEFA's model is the, the knight in shining white armour. The difference there, to a degree, is that they had a lot of consultation with a lot of different stakeholders in order to get to that position. The SL clubs basically kept it all to themselves and then decided that's what they were going to do, um, which obviously is a, a, a compare and contrast for, uh, for another day. Yeah, because I think another thing that's just quite interesting, even with when you look at how everything is structured, is that the FA is meant to be that national body that effectively governs football. But if you look at most countries, that that national governing body is the, is the body that has all the money. But in our instance, it's the Premier League. And it's an interesting thing whereby the FA are meant to almost regulate the overall game. The Premier League are meant to regulate the Premier League. The EFL are meant to regulate the EFL but they're all regulate kind of like regulators but they're also competitions and effectively the Premier League with the uh, one vote one share the Premier League is effectively really just the 20 clubs and those clubs change every single season so it does beg the question of who has the final control and the final say and, uh, and, and, and what rules need to be put in place and and, and and I think that's that's quite a difficult difficult thing to to really come to. Yeah, I agree. And but I think the important thing there is is that um, you know what actually happens off the time is difficult negotiation in order to find solutions to stuff. Um, but again, I'd go back to that first point, which is 
I know everyone's upset about lots of different things going on at the moment, but I think everybody needs to try and work out actually, and this part might be part of the fan-led review, is what the fans actually want to see changed. What, what do they actually want to see changed in total? And realistically, what can be changed then as a result? I'm not saying anything is on or off the table, but I don't think it's just going to suddenly be all 20 clubs are going to be owned by their fans in the next three years. Um, uh, because I, I don't think that, you know, that's a realistic outcome. Um, we only saw, I think it was yesterday or the day before, there was a Premier League press release talking about how there's going to be an owner's charter, which yeah. owners have to sign up to, which is which is obviously going to be an evolution of the owners and directors test, which was the fit and proper person test. So it'll be interesting to see what that owner's charter actually says over and above what is currently in the, the regulations. Yeah. And from reading between the lines of what Scudamore said, he he suggested there would be some type of, positive undertakings that owners and clubs would have to say to say that they're never being able to they're not going to be able to sign up to any type of competition which will effectively undermine the um the uh, entity that is the premier league and effectively you know do anything that would 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 break it up i guess so um i'm really interested in the fan-led review the the it's um it's got quite a lot of areas of interest that will be for me which would be interesting but again the other the flip side is that the premier league and the fa are launching their own investigation as to the esl stuff so it'd be fascinating to see if either of those documents in the end will be made public for everyone to be able to read because that would be yeah. like totally fascinating totally fascinating insights into what actually happened and why it happened yeah i think for me in, in terms of what fans want to see speaking as a fan myself i think it's just that, that removal of self-interest. Like I had Tom Gorin, who's on the board of Bristol Rovers, come on the podcast and he spoke about going to the EFL meetings uh, over the pandemic and how some teams wanted null and void, how some teams wanted the season to carry on. And effectively, like we speak about this sort of football family, but really everyone has their own, own effective interest. And it's a case of how can we almost harmonise everything together for the better for fans and that's the main reason why I set up this podcast to speak with people behind the scenes like yourself people people who run football clubs people who are involved that are controversial figures like agents who I'm sure you, you spend a lot of time with to just get people to understand what really happens uh, really happens behind the scenes because just sort of in terms of, of, of how I look at things I think a lot of this while what fans want is important, but we have to really look at the financial sustainability of things because ultimately what's driving clubs to really want to make more revenues because because salaries keep going up and up and up. And I'd love to even know your thoughts on salary caps, whether you believe they work. I had Anna at Portsmouth come on and she, she was quite a bit upset with the uh, introduction of salary caps because obviously Portsmouth are in League One and obviously they're not any in the championship. But, um, it's definitely something that's really pushing clubs to the, uh, p- pushing them to the, to the core, really. Well, it's an interesting one on salary caps. I mean, we saw the um, uh, League One and League Two salary caps um, effectively ruled illegal because they, the, the EFL didn't consult um, with the relevant stakeholders, including, um, um, uh, including the PFA. Um, I've got I've got a, a wider view on cost control, which is I think on the whole, uh, and in terms of financial fair play, UEFA have done a relatively good job actually in terms of um, changing the behaviours of clubs around Europe that are playing in UEFA competition. 
And I know there is still a lot of controversy around enforcement. Um, yeah. You know, everyone's saying, you know, Man City got off, PSG got off, other people only got fines. This, be, you know, the big clubs weren't um, expelled from competitions and all that type of all that type of thing. Um, there are definitely some uh, issues with the regulations themselves in terms of enforceability of particular elements and um, uh, areas that obviously needed to be improved because UEFA lost particular decisions, especially more recently PSG and Man City stuff. But if we talk about the wider picture of, you know, back in 2010, European clubs losing almost 2 billion euros to a time just pre-pandemic where everyone was in the black, really, and everyone was making profit. Um, the, the same, that that was more or less based on um, ensuring that clubs couldn't earn basically more than they spent with a little bit of loss, which is called acceptable deviation. The issue with the League One and League Two salary cap, which I thought was difficult to enforce, was that it was a hard cap. It was, yeah. you know, two and a half million, you couldn't spend more on wages, and then one and a half for the League Two, you couldn't spend on more, which which effectively did the other opposite. It did disincentivize the big clubs to actually try and find more commercial revenue generation. I almost think that you should be able to live within your means, within your means. So if you're a bigger club, yeah. Um, you, you know, and you can try and um, find more commercial revenues then that you can um, spend on on player wages, then that should be your right. I don't think there should just be an artificial cap which just limits the the bit potentially the bigger the clubs, which is obviously to the advantage sometimes of the of the smaller clubs and and that is is the problem. So whereas I think that probably the better way, I know there are issues with it as well, is that you make it a proportion of your revenues that you can spend on wages more generally or you make enough carve outs and exemptions like you see in mls for example or like you see in rugby for example um that allow um particular incentives to drive um po positive behaviors like salary salary cap credits for particular youth development ideas or particular um players that come into your squad for certain things or you have um you know um marquee player exemptions on particular players that come in if it's one if it's two if players are injured for a particular period of time that can be taken away from the cap in certain ways so there are tons of examples inside and outside of football that demonstrate how a salary cap or some type of cost control can work effectively ultimately now it feels like now's the time for the efl who need to go back to the drawing board with how they're going to actually implement some type of cost control to look across the board and see how it's done well across other sports and leagues and then to try and take the best of those to see how it might work in practice yeah because it, it definitely needs to change i think even the, the championship when i looked at it the, the revenue to wages ratio is about 105 percent and i think even gary in, in that overlap with, with scudamore was even saying that that rat race to getting into the premier league and championship club spending beyond their means and i think like even just hearing the news about the Super League, like none of it really shocked me or surprised me because all of these sorts of issues that that we're sort of seeing come out of it in terms of how fans are being treated, in terms of sustainability, in terms of owners trying to make more money and Americanized football, they've all kind of been looming. And I'd love to know your 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 thoughts on things. I know you work with quite a lot of owners uh, in regards to takeovers or helping to support them without breaking client confidentiality. What's, what's the sort of feeling within the camp in regards to what, what we're going to see over the next year or so in regards to regulation within football? Are people worried? What are they scared about? Um, it, it'd definitely be good to know. 
Well, you know, I don't, I don't, um, I don't know uh, firsthand. It's obviously the truth um, in a lot of yeah. ways, but you can you can see and hear the types of noises that are coming out from clubs, especially you know yeah. the bigger clubs that were looking to try and do this. So, and, and there's no you know surprise that a lot of the the drivers were the American owners of the bigger clubs who are used to the types of franchise closed league models that that um work that for them very well um uh, across the across the atlantic so um i think this would have come as a big uh, surprise still is the truth because what's yeah. happened is there's been this creeping of that all the way along um you know greater distribution of the international monies at uefa level getting um uh, more coefficient monies and historical monies less to do with performance sometimes or otherwise so the big established clubs the new stuff around um a joint media um company with the clubs and uefa about for example having two spots legacy spots that aren't necessarily dependent on domestic qualification so you can see you can see what's happening and what has happened over a long period of time, that slow drip. But I think the thing that um, it seems like was been the case for a while is that the big clubs could hold this Super League idea um, as a sword of Damocles over everybody else. We will do this unless you accept our new terms about Project Big Picture, having you know more ability to be able to make decisions um, outside of uh, you know a fourteen-six majority, etc. And you know we're the only ones that the fans want, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I almost think that bargaining and leverage, you know, has effectively completely fallen away. Um, is the truth. And, um, and and that is an important sort of counterbalance now, which is if the Premier League see that as not a viable threat, um, you know, the, the, the smaller clubs or a collection of the smaller clubs probably feel that they are in a stronger position to either enforce different types of regulation, self-regulation on the, the, the membership collective um, to ensure this type of thing can't happen again, but also um, for everybody's self-interest or interest in lots of different ways and who knows that might happen it might well be that there's still going to be a premier league too i mean who knows there's so many different nuances all of the of, of what of what is going on here it's almost yeah. like a year ago we had fifa possibly starting its new competition yeah, the club um, with yeah. with particular clubs then we have a full turnaround where FIFA back UEFA recently to say, no, these clubs can't break away from domestic leagues and we respect UEFA's position on, um, on ensuring that was the case. Whereas six months before that, it was rumoured that FIFA were trying to usurp UEFA in some, in some particular way. And then we have this whole argument around, you know, the prem it being um, terrible um, of this whole break, the whole, the whole general idea of the breakaway. Well, that happened in 1992 to a degree, not to the same extent, but... Yeah. The Premier League then got most of the money and then distributed it some out. In the same way, it could be argued that if it hadn't been for the semi-closed status of the ESL, the same was just going to happen again. So, you know, bigger fish were eating bigger fish um, yeah. to a degree. So it all just comes in waves and roundabouts. And everybody was saying, well, this is just leverage to get a better deal with UEFA. I think it was obvious to see that it wasn't really leverage. This was this was this was happening really to a degree. Um, so in the end, you know. Um, if a UEFA deal is struck, I'm not sure it's going to be because of ESL or in spite of. It's because, you know, ultimately everybody was so against um, the ESL idea that, um, you know, UEFA is in pole position now to try and try and finalise things. Yeah, and I think even just leading, leading on from some of the things that you mentioned there, like 
just even hearing and seeing, like I had Laurie Pinto and we spoke about the Americanization of English football back in December and we've allowed these smart American investors to come into our league who run profitable, like I think I saw a stat the other day whereby the 20 biggest sports teams in the world, only three of them are actually football clubs. So we've allowed these investors to come in who run successful NBA, NFL franchises with loads of bright ideas about how they sell their commercial rights, how they make money for their franchises. And, and they've effectively come in and seen what the Premier League are doing, seen what UEFA is doing. And they believe they can do it better and in a different way. And I think they, they gave us eight bullet points and everyone slammed them and had a go at them. They didn't give us a report. They didn't give us a manifesto. I think, like you mentioned at the start, that there are a fundamental basis behind some of those ideas that potentially could be leveraged for everyone to benefit throughout the whole entire game. So I've been a big believer in Premflix. I'd love to know your thoughts. I know logistically, in terms of the Premier League becoming its own broadcaster, but that's an idea that I believe generates more money for the Premier League, more money for the clubs, cheaper um, games to watch for the fans, and everyone can sort of benefit from that. So I'd love to know your thoughts on um, on Premflix. Well, let's just go back one stage really quickly because. Yeah. Well, the really interesting element that I have on that, that first bit of what you said is completely right. What American owners that are used to a franchise system want to avoid is risk. And everything that they have done over the last particular period of time is to reduce their risk. Reduce yeah. risk of relegation, which is not that likely, but reduce the risk of not qualifying for the most lucrative competitions. And if they can do that incrementally by increment, incremental by increment, increment by increment or incrementally then that benefits obviously their teams by being able to add greater valuation onto their um, investment because ultimately that is what's going to be the case and i'm not necessarily sure it's just us owners they're 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 more likely to have a greater propensity because they're used to it they understand their model and yeah. the model works well for them so i completely agree um on on that point on premflix um there's, there's loads to consider, but if I just give you maybe two or three points, the, the, the interesting bit in Project Big Picture that was um, set aside a little bit was that the bigger clubs wanted to be able to put some of their games on their own channels. Yes. That tells its own story very quickly, which is they wanted to be able to monetize. They wanted to be able to use their own channels, platforms or OTT systems platforms as a testing ground to see how they could actually monetize on a game by game basis for how many games that might have been four to six or whatever it is on a on a on a season by season basis um the premier league before they got um richard masters as their chief exec wanted um an ott broadcasting chief executive two or three for whatever reasons rejected the post in the end but there's no coincidence that all of them were broadcasting um, experience-led individuals. That tells, in my mind, its own story about what the Premier League was thinking about in their whatever iteration of how they were going to go to market with a slightly different broadcasting product. Um, and, and, and apparently what happened with the ESL proposals that were leaked was that there was the opportunity to for clubs to exclusively broadcast a number of ESL matches on their own platforms however they wanted to potentially do it to raise additional revenues so the question isn't whether this will happen 
i.e. Um, clubs or collective entities or leagues deciding to broad to bypass broadcasters it's inevitable that that will likely happen at some point the question is when because at present it is still too valuable too big an opportunity cost to go through the process of uh put, taking everything in-house because it's not as straightforward as just a premflix model of just putting it on a platform and then just selling it because what effectively the Premier League does at the moment is they outsource their IP. All they say is they're giving broadcasters the right to be able to film, record and broadcast. And then even more so for people to buy the broadcast, usually through subscription models and then be the marketeers in every single jurisdiction to be able to then market the product in any event. If the Premier League takes on that risk, they take on every part of that supply chain, that digital supply chain, which is incredibly tough to do well, when the truth is, is that without a lot of different partners to be able to do that, it would be very difficult for them to do. So the whole Simon Jordan thing, in truth, of him going, this is what they do and they'll make billions to spend as a fiver and it'll be this easy process of actually rolling out at scale to the world's population, a Premier League platform, in my mind, is um, hugely oversimplified. But, but as a basic principle, I get it. The detail and the structure and the scale that would be needed to, to, to put in place a, a plan of action to not only sell, but uh, broadcast and then distribute and then market and then have a consumer facing offering globally would be a very, very, very big um, operation. And based on what the, what the Premier League does in its biggest markets to its biggest broadcasters at the moment, it's not obviously not worth their while. But what you can see happening, UEFA are doing it in particular territories for certain rights. The Premier League, I would be surprised if they don't in some little test markets in some jurisdictions just say, we're going to do it. We're going to do it ourselves and let's test it out and let's see. And let's use particular partners this time around in the next cycle and let's see what happens. But for the very big markets like the Premier, like UK that are paying 8 billion plus, I think for the, at least to the short to medium term, it, it's, it's not a likely scenario. Long term, it will absolutely happen, in my view. Yeah, no. Have you prepared some, uh, you've definitely gave, given me some food for thought there, but have you uh, prepared some answers for what the foot are you lying for? Ready. Ready. Ready, yeah. Hold let's, on. Let's get into it, because I know I've taken up a, a bit more of your time, Daniel. Okay, right. In no particular order of lies or truths, uh, first one, I missed an overhead kick at Anfield in front of the cop in 2004. In front of the cop in 2002. Okay, what's, what's the second one? Okay, I'll tell you them all so that you can go from there. Yeah. I went to Everton's training ground, Belfield. Um, for rehab on my knee surgery. Knee surgery. So that's number two. 
I'll give you the number three and then you can decide. Robbie Fowler almost bought my house, my childhood house in Liverpool. Oh, Robbie Fowler. The thing about it is that Robbie Fowler knows a prolific property investor. Um, but I never thought you were from Liverpool, though. I think that's that's a bit of the detail. This, but Robbie Fowler, property almost buying. I'm gonna say that's true. I'm gonna say um, the first one. I know you're into your charity work, so maybe a charity game at Anfield didn't sound too far fetched. Um, you, you don't seem quite injury prone, <laughs> um, so I'm going to say the cop one is overhead kick. Actually, nah, 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 nah. nah. I'm going to say the Everton training ground surgery is is true, and the Robbie Fowler one is true, and the Anfield one is a lie. But we'll find out towards the end because the last question we like to end the show with is the what the footy question. We've kind of alluded to quite a few things right now, um, so far. Sorry. Um, but what the footy would you like to see happen or change within football, within your space? I would actually, it's a little bit controversial. Um, I would like to see, just as like US sports um, as a case, I would like everybody's uh, salary to be um, available and every, uh, yeah, every salary to be available so that everybody knows transparently what each other is earning. Wow. Yeah, do you know what it is? I think we, we just have an interesting culture over here in comparison to the UK where we like to just keep things quite private. Like over there, as you sort of mentioned, everything there is open. You can even kind of see in the way um, the reporters interview them as well, how open and free-spirited they are. And over here, we just have a different kind of different kind of culture, really. I don't know, yeah. Yeah, I think it just means that then when there's negotiations going on, uh, agents can do their their job properly to a degree, mm. rather than thinking, well, he's on that or not on that, or and maybe they all know what each other's on, but <clears throat> to a degree, I I almost think almost always transparency brings efficiency, um, efficiencies, um, which can usually be quite a helpful thing. So that's one of my slightly uh, left of field ones. And, and and even just on agents there right now, I think we've seen the growing trend of um, people like yourself, lawyers actually. Um, doing actually the, the contracts and, and the negotiations and sometimes players like for example Kevin De Bruyne who signed with, with Rock Nation they do more of these commercial uh, deals for him and he, he just negotiated his own deal just using a data partner do you see agents in the future just almost being fully fully replaced and just focusing more on the commercial side and the, the contracts are, pe- are left to people like us or, or uh... yeah I mean I think deals like that are the outliers in truth. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the reason to a degree is, you know, and, and I see it a lot with a lot of the very good agents and I work with a lot of them, um, is what agents are effectively trying to do is be um, information conduits. Agents need to know not only what the market value for a particular player is if he resigns or she resigns, but if they go somewhere else. So De Bruyne or Sterling or anybody else that might be signing new deals without, without a, a trusted agent. Um, usually that is because they are so entrenched in the club and want to stay there that perhaps they, that they are happy 
um, with and and the full knowledge of the amounts that they're earning now and what they need to get to to a degree to stay, and then maybe taking some of the agents commission that there would have been as part of that uplift, which which obviously yeah. is very helpful. The difference some ways is that usually a very good agent will be leveraging other clubs' interest in their player to get an even better deal is one thing. The thing usually that um, is important is um, the, the agent's role a lot of the time is to provide the leverage. If a player and, and Sterling and De Bruyne are not really the best examples, because um, if a player needs to be able to demonstrate value by showing what someone else will pay. Yeah. You only do that through an agent being able to drum up that um, uh, support or drum up that interest in those particular players. So that if you're not willing to accept the offer that the club is able to provide, you have alternatives. Yeah. Because if you don't have alternatives, you can't usually, within reason, or it becomes very risky, to have your bluff called. Now, yeah. City obviously know De Bruyne and Sterling's value, and that's okay. And De Bruyne and Sterling have an idea, presumably, about what their um, values should be. But generally, I think they are the outliers um, rather than, and the exceptions to the rule rather than the usual. Yeah, no, that's, that's really useful, makes sense. Because, um, yeah, I think that the landscape is quite interesting right now because I know. Marcus Rashford, obviously, his brother does a lot of stuff for him. Same with Trent, same with Harry Kane as well. So it's just interesting to see how the industry is just shifting and changing. So nervous to hear the answer. Um, so, Paul, just remind me, which is, what did you go with in the end? You went with, oh. you said that Robbie Fowler bought, we almost bought my house. You said that I went to Everton for rehab, but that I didn't score an overhead kick at Anfield in front of the cop. That's exactly what I said, yeah. Okay, so Robbie Fowler did almost buy my childhood house. Yeah, and you're from Liverpool? I'm from Liverpool. Okay, yeah. I didn't go for rehab at Belfield, unfortunately. And in 2004, I did score, try and uh, make, take an overhead kick in a charity game. You were right. Yeah. But it was in front, of, uh, in front of nobody in the cop. There were about three people in the cop, but it was in front of the cop in 2004. So oh, what, one out of three. Did you, did, you, did you score that overhead kick? I wish I'd scored an overhead kick. I, I yeah. lined up for an overhead kick and yeah. the ball went over my head, unfortunately. So, uh, yeah. yes. <laughs> no, I was, was, was going to say, if you, if you scored it, was it a shin? Was it more of the shin or was it more <laughs> like top of the beat? Or... Yeah, I'll leave that one to your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> but no, Daniel, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and appreciate your time as well. Thank you for coming through. Hopefully do it again another time as well. But um, yeah. Pleasure as always, and uh, best of luck with your podcast and the stuff that you do as well. Pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Big up and big love to everyone that made it to the end of the episode. I hope you loved hearing from myself and Daniel speak about governance and regulation in the world of football. Guys, this is the penultimate episode for this run of the What The Fee podcast. I'll be back around July with the next batch of episodes so be sure to hit me up in the dms whether that's twitter or instagram to let me know which guests and which topics you guys want guys i hope you love this not like this so you know what to do download subscribe rate and review and tell a friend to tell a friend this goal 
What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school. Now it's a putting off. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that. But then also, they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Let's just win this to appease the fan. Gym sessions and sweaty summer activities are back, which means more funky smells in your clothes because sweat leaves behind bacteria that causes those hard to remove odors. Clorox fabric sanitizer products are ready to zap the stink out of fabrics in your home by getting rid of 99.9% of odor-causing bacteria. Eliminate odors in every load or sanitize fabrics between washes with one of our fabric sanitizer products. Search fabric sanitizer at Clorox.com to learn more. When it counts, trust Clorox. Use as directed. Minute Maid slushies are back at McDonald's. And if you'd like to thank me for that information, I'll gladly take a slushie. It's more than a drink. It's a McDonald's drink. Right now, treat yourself to a small Minute Maid slushie, like the new strawberry watermelon flavor for $1.59. Or try small McCafe frappes and smoothies for just 2 bucks. Price and participation may vary. Limited time only. Minute Maid is a trademark of the Coca-Cola Company.